If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. They would chuck radioactive waste just down the men's loos. There'd be a kind of waste pipe that was discharging above a children's playground. The women just wore cotton smocks and they'd have kind of cans of soda that they could drink in the workroom and so on. That was Kate Moore discussing the tragic story of the Radium Girls. This revolution that began in cotton spinning, particularly in the water-powered phase, was taking place all over the country. It was, however, with the steam-powered phase that one begins to see a growing concentration of the industry in and around southeast Lancashire. And that was Terry Wyke talking about Britain's cotton industry. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of June 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with the writer Kate Moore, Kate is the author of The Radium Girls, a new book which tells the story of a group of women in early 20th century America, whose employment involved exposure to this radioactive element, with terrible results. I spoke to Kate a little while back to find out more about the women's experiences and their later fight for justice. 
can we um, please begin just by talking about radium? Um, for those listening who might not be aware, what exactly is it and how was it discovered? Okay, so it was discovered in 1898 by Marie and Pierre Curie. And it's basically, you find it in kind of ore. They found it in pitch blend ore, but you can find it in different types of ore. And it's a it, it's a very rare element. And to find it, you basically have to put the kind of ore through loads of different refining processes to kind of get rid of all the kind of earth and all the other different elements are in there to eliminate it down. And so after those processes and commercially when it was done, there were about 900 different processes it went through. You'd be left from a ton of ore with only about kind of five or seven milligrams of radium. And it would be, it would look like a kind of little salt. Um, so that'd be about the size of a butter pat from a ton of ore is what they'd get. And it would glow. So it has a luminescence in its natural form, which is why it was used to make radium paint. So you could put it on watches so you could see in the dark or you'd put it on um, aeronautical instruments so a pilot can see in the dark, you know, how fast he's going or what the altitude is and so on. And I understand that it became fairly soon tremendously popular. And I think in your book, you describe it or say it was just described as liquid sunshine. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that and about why their kind of radium craze developed? Well, I mean, people called it kind of the unknown god and it had this kind of mystical allure to it. As I say, it, it was luminous, so it would glow in the dark, which obviously seems otherworldly. Um, and because radium kind of decays, it has a half-life. So with this particular kind of radium, it has a half-life of 1,600 years and it kind of transmutes into another element. So um it was kind of like the kind of alchemy, you know, it was an element that would turn into other things and it would give off this glow. Very quickly, they discovered it could be put to use kind of medicinally for kind of treating tumours and things like that, because it would burn through tissue. So it seemed like this incredible, mystical element. And very quickly, it was kind of pounced on by entrepreneurs, not only for using in, in medical purposes but also it was you know written about in novels and sung about on broadway and people declared that it was in toothpaste and makeup and all sorts of things wasn't always put into those things because it was an incredibly expensive element because it was so difficult to find. There wasn't a lot of radium in the world. Literally only a few grams existed at, at one point. So sometimes it would be advertised as being part of um, a product, but it wasn't always put into it. But it was absolutely everywhere. As I say, um, you know, just going down the grocery store, you would find it in butter, you'd find it in toothpaste, you'd find it in milk. They sold jock straps and lingerie that had radium in it to kind of boost your sex life and then as I say the medical kind of ex exploitation of it was not just for treating cancer but also for radioactive dressings and pads people put it in pills so that you could take pills and it was also put in tonics so you'd add it to water and then drink that radioactive tonic kind of five to seven glasses a day was the recommended dose anyone listening to this now would be pretty shocked by all of this because as we now know radioactive properties can be be very dangerous to human health. At what point did people first begin to realise the dangers of radium? Well, to be honest, it was realised very, very soon. Um, you know, the book opens with a prologue set in 1901 uh, with one of the very first scientists who was who was using it. Um, and he found, you know, he'd left it in his waistcoat pocket and he had this burn that developed on his skin. So very quickly, people realised that 
the radiation was dangerous and so workers who were using it so for example doctors in hospitals using it to treat cancer they would wear lead aprons to block the beta and gamma rays from the radiation or they use um, ivory tipped tongs to kind of you know use the test tubes that were full of radium so very early on it was discovered that actually it wasn't all brilliant. But what's interesting about it is because it was exploited so much commercially, the commercial companies did a lot of their own research and they were obviously looking for good things. So if they noticed that radium caused changes in the blood, they'd say, well, this is a great thing. It, you know, it kind of is the gift that keeps on giving because, you know, your, your blood is always kind of changing and this is a fabulous thing. And it was the positive message that was put out there in newspapers and magazines. And that's what people believed even though actually it was discovered to be very dangerous very early on. Moving on to the story of the Radium Girls, if, if your book's title, what kind of people was it who were working in these factories and why was it that they seemingly were all female? I think it was a job that um, appealed to women in particular actually a lot of the very first dial painters came from China painting backgrounds. So I think it's a kind of classic thing to say that, you know, women have small, nimble hands and it's a particularly artistic job. And so I think it appeals to a lot of young women for that reason. And what's interesting about the fact that they came from China painting backgrounds is they took the techniques that they'd learned in that industry with them. And their technique for the very fine China painting on plates and vases and things like that was to lip point. So to put your paintbrush between your lips to make a super fine point so that you could do the detailed and delicate handiwork. And that's what the radium dial painters did too. And just to be clear, dial painters, so would that be painting the dials on a watch, say, or a clock? That's right, yeah. So it, they did all sorts of dials. So it would be watches, clocks, and also um, military instruments. So dials that would go on a dashboard or dials for a plane and that sort of thing as well. And so they've got radium. They're actually putting radium on their own lips. That sounds to me like a, a, an incredibly dangerous thing to do. What what kind of effects did this have on them? Well, the the kind of eerie thing about it was it took many years for the effects to show so lots of the women thought this was the best job ever because it was very lucrative um the radium paint made them glow because they'd get covered in the dust in the laboratory and so on and it was actually it took several years before anyone started to show any poor effects and the problem with radium is once it's inside you you can't get rid of it so once the damage was known it was already too late for those women who'd been affected. The first thing that they would notice is that they might have dental trouble. So they might have a loose tooth or a painful gum and they would go and get the tooth extracted from the dentist. But then the tooth extraction wouldn't heal. And in fact, what was happening was every time they took a tooth out, the infection was spreading. So the women ended up losing, many of them lost all their teeth the gums would get infected, so it would be very kind of, you know, loads of ulcers, basically. It would be like having a whole abscess in your entire mouth. And then it didn't just stop with the teeth. It then went into their jaw bones as well. And the thing about radium was it didn't just affect their teeth. The teeth were the first things to be evident, but women found over the years that it had also gone into their spines or their hips or their feet or their arms. And so they noticed there might be spontaneous fractures. So their arm or their leg would suddenly break or they would find that their legs started shortening 
um, or they'd find uh, that they couldn't use their arm anymore or that their back was very painful. And basically what the radium does is it starts essentially making holes in their bones while they're still alive. So they call it honeycombing. And that's what was happening to them in their spines, in their jaw bones, in their leg bones, throughout their bodies. Holes were being made in them while they were alive. It just sounds absolutely awful. Am I right to say that some of them was actually fatal for some of these women? Yes, it was It was fatal for, for most of them. And the thing about, as I say, the, the kind of awful thing about it was that, I mean, it was the first time people, because people hadn't been eating radium for very long, it was a type of radiation that had never been seen before in human beings. And the women had to fight against this perspective, you know, um, of radium, this perception of radium, that it was a really good, amazing element that everyone should use and have around as much as possible. And they were trying to say that there's a connection here. You know, my mates that I was working with, you know, we're all getting the same problems. And it took a very long time before anyone actually believed them. And it took, you know, probably about 10 women had died before anyone started investigating it properly. So initially, what did the medical profession think were happening to these women? Did, did they not actually understand that it was radium poisoning? No, not at all. They could appreciate, obviously, that there was some malevolent kind of illness happening to them, that there was a force inside them that was making their teeth fall out and kind of, as I say, eating their bones. But they thought, particularly with the mouth illnesses, they thought it was phosphorus originally, because fossy jaw was, by that time, in, in the kind of 1920s, was a very well-known industrial poison. Um, a lot of people will have heard of the match girls and the way that, you know, the women that worked in match factories had similar symptoms in a way because phosphorus was poisoning them. So a lot of the doctors thought it must be phosphorus. There must be phosphorus in the radium paint and that's the problem. But of course, the radium company said, oh no, there's there's no phosphorus, therefore we're kind of in the clear. So that's what the doctors thought it was originally. And they also didn't connect the different illnesses. So one woman would go and say, oh, my hip's really bad. Another woman would say, I've got a really bad back. Someone else would say, oh, my knee hurts. And they didn't connect obviously, the different illnesses at first because the symptoms were so different in different individuals. How many people were affected by this? What, what kind of numbers are we talking about? There's not an official number that you can put on it. It's in the thousands, but because the employment records at that time weren't particularly well kept, it was the kind of job that people might just do for a summer or, you know, they'd kind of, I don't know, take their sister's job for a little bit while she was off doing something else. So the employment records aren't good enough and we haven't tracked down enough of the women to be able to say it was X amount of women that died from it or X amount of women who were poisoned. And in terms of the employers, do you think they were just completely ignorant of what was happening or was there something a bit more sinister going on? It was definitely more sinister. As I say, the evidence from the um, very beginning of the century was that radium was harmful. You could argue that their, their belief was that the women were using such a small amount of radium that it wouldn't affect them. Obviously, they were wrong. But in their defence, you could say that to begin with, they believed that they weren't harming the women because the amount of radium was so small. But once it became evident that their workforce was dying, the companies, to their shame, covered it up. You know, they had expert reports saying this is definitely the problem. And they concealed them, covered it up, denied that they were at fault, said the women were trying to palm off something on the firm, said the women were sick to begin with and it wasn't their fault. 
What's really sinister is that there was a studio in New Jersey where the illnesses first started showing. But there were other doll painting studios across America who had opened a little bit later. So because radium poisoning takes some years to show, it was a little bit later before their employees started sickening. But even though it had been proved in New Jersey that radium was to blame for the poisoning, the other companies in different parts of America actually lied to their employees. They published adverts in the newspaper assuring them that they were fine. They gave them medical tests, which proved that the employees were already showing signs of poisoning. And they lied and said the results were absolutely fine. And I understand that the story soon acquired a a legal dimension. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, this is what I think is amazing about the women. I mean, I've talked about the kind of suffering they were enduring. The radium was inside them and attacking them all the time. They were suffering horrifically. And they were determined because they could see that the companies were denying all responsibility. So, you know, even as these women were dying, other women were being put at risk. And so even in the face of this incredible suffering that they were going through and in the face of companies were very rich, they had a lot of power, a lot of lawyers wouldn't take the case. But the women fought for justice because they wanted it to be legally determined that this was radium poisoning. There was a problem. The companies were poisoning people. And so they fought for justice and took the companies to court. And, And how did they get on in their court battle? The book focuses on two sets of court cases, one for the women in New Jersey and one for the women in Illinois. The first group of women um, had to settle out of court and they still then faced extreme trials because the company tried to get out of paying the money. So they settled, but they said the condition of the settlement was that the women had to endure further medical tests by an appointed committee. And the committee were deliberately appointed with pro-radium doctors who were looking to find the women clear of radium poisoning so that the company could stop paying the money. The second group of women who sued their company after the first court case had to jump through lots of hoops. Their first case they lost. They then couldn't find another lawyer who would take it. But finally, after years of battling, they finally got a verdict that said the company was at fault. And so what impact did did this have on health and safety and also workers' rights? It had a huge, huge impact. Basically, you know, people now attribute what the girls achieved and what the girls fought for as being the kind of foundation for workers' rights and health and safety in the workplace in America. The women were kind of assisted and championed by people like Frances Perkins, who was the first woman in a presidential cabinet. And essentially, they got the law changed, particularly the group of women in Illinois, who, as I say, they lost their first case. And the law had to be changed because it was evident, all the tests that by this stage, you know, it it was a fact that radium poisoning existed and was a problem. And yet the women had lost their case because of antiquated laws. So their courage in fighting for justice actually got the laws rewritten. And as I say, led to what we see today where there are there is health and safety legislation and there's a administration agency in the US who makes sure that this kind of thing can't happen again. But would I be right to say that this wasn't the last time this kind of radium poisoning incident did happen? No, you're, you're absolutely right, sadly. I think basically what happened with the radium girls was by the time these all these court cases from the first generation of radium dial painters had finished, radium dial painting was the most feared occupation among young women. 
And the court cases happened just as they, as America and the world was entering the Second World War. And of course, there was a, a huge demand for um, more radium dials. You know, we were putting more planes, tra- tanks and, and boats into production. There were more soldiers needing wristwatches so that they could see um, as they're fighting in the dark and so on. So radium dial painting suddenly, once again, became a huge industry. But because of the original radium girls fighting for justice, not staying silent, you know, making sure the world knew about this problem, safety standards were put into place, which did protect those wartime dial painters. And it also led um, to, with the Manhattan Project and the making of the atomic bomb, the radium dial painters and the safety standards were, you know, directly linked. But the problem with these things, of course, is you can have safety standards and that's what the girls achieved. But the safety standards mean nothing if your employers won't abide by them. And what's really tragic about this story is in the very same town in Illinois, very small town called Ottawa, at the, at the kind of when the dial painting studio opened, it had a population of about 10,000 people. It's very small. In that very same town where people had gone to court, they'd fought, they died, they'd proven that this was a problem. The very same boss who'd run the first dial painting studio opened a second one and he essentially did exactly the same thing again. So he didn't abide by the safety standards. There were things like they would chuck radioactive waste just down the men's loos. There'd be a kind of waste pipe that was discharging above a children's playground. The women just wore cotton smocks and they'd have kind of cans of soda that they could drink in the workroom and so on. And they were encouraged, just as the first girls were, to kind of, you know, they wanted to paint their nails with it or, you know, with the luminous radium paint they could. And so obviously a second generation of dial painters then also sickened. And just like the first women, they found a similar thing. It was very hard to to find justice. Um, And to be honest, my understanding is that they never actually did the second generation of dial painters because I think it wasn't, they didn't lip point and they were told they'd be safe if they didn't lip point. But a lot of them, you know, the statistical evidence suggests that they did suffer because of their work and because of the poor safety standards. And so do you feel this is a story that that still needs to be told today? Absolutely, I, I do. I mean, my kind of passion for doing it is that I think a lot of people have forgotten the story or they ve- maybe vaguely know it, um, but they don't know the detail. And I think the suffering that the women went through, the callous nature with which the companies ignored the truth of the situation and tried to cover it up, and the fact that these women not only changed the law but also contributed incalculably to science is something so important, and that's why I wanted to write the book so that their story was known and remembered and that people now can read about it and recognise their courage and their sacrifice and how amazing they were. And I'm interested to know what first got you interested in this story. And, and did you ever get to meet any of the other people involved? I guess would probably be would be dead now, but any of their, say, descendants or family? Yeah, that, that was what was amazing. So, I mean, you, you've kind of asked me two questions there. So um, I got into the story because I was fortunate enough. I act and direct as well. I directed a play about the women called These Shining Lives, which is about the Ottawa dial painters. And it's a creative work of nonfiction. So it's based on the story, but the playwright has imagined uh, what their characters are like and so on. So this play really connected with me. I thought the women were amazing, obviously, because I was directing it. I did a lot of research um, and realised that their story had never been told in the way I thought it should be told, which is to write it almost as a novel with the women as characters and using first-person accounts, so diaries, letters, and so on. So that's how the book came about, because there there wasn't one, and I thought this is 
you know, an outrage that there hasn't been their story because their story is amazing and their words are so incredible. You know, it's I've tried to use as much of the women's words as I can because it's their story. And as part of that research, so as I say, I, I was quoting from diaries and letters and newspaper articles and interviews that they gave and so on. But I also try to track down as many relatives as I could. So I went to America to research the book and I was just amazed at the reaction from the families. Actually, it was incredible to meet them. So I was meeting nieces and nephews and sons and daughters and of the dial painters and of the attorneys that were involved in the court cases and so on, and interviewed them about what the people were really like, um, what their memories were. Many of them had obviously, you know, knew the women personally, had seen them sicken, had been there in their sick rooms, had heard about the case knew what the family situation was like. You know, they could describe what a marriage was like between a dial painter and her husband, for example. And that was really extraordinary to get that insight from them. And I'm very, very grateful for them being so honest with me and opening up their their hearts and their homes to tell me about their relatives. That was Kate Moore. The Radium Girls has just been published by Simon & Schuster. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. And now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Nazi memorabilia worth more than €600,000 was acquired by a single mystery bidder at a controversial auction in Munich, it has emerged. The buyer bought almost all the lots at the auction, which took place at the Hermann Historica auction house. Items included Hermann Goering's nightshirt and silk underpants, which went for €3,000, a military-style jacket worn by Hitler, which went for €275,000, and an X-ray of the Führer's skull after a 1944 assassination attempt, which went for €21,000. The items were purchased by an unidentified man who said he was from Argentina. He claimed the items would be displayed in an unidentified, quote, museum, the Telegraph reports. In total, the auction made around €900,000. In other news, 
Hundreds of drawings by US soldiers etched into the walls of a vast tunnel network built in northern France by Allied forces in the First World War have been discovered by an amateur explorer. Troops thought to be from the US Army's 26th Infantry Division carved pictures of themselves and their horses, as well as military insignia, nicknames and logos, into tunnels used by the American Expeditionary Force. The tunnels were designed to provide shelter from German bombardment. Amateur explorer Mark Ascott discovered the etchings on a recent trip to the site, deep inside a forest in northern France. After a long crawl underground, I was lucky enough to see a giant bald eagle blaze sculpted by the 26th Yankee Division was in front of me, Mr Ascott told the Telegraph. This place was very rich with finds. I didn't even check my watch during almost eight hours underground. Meanwhile, a 17th century fire engine built in the aftermath of the Great Fire of London, has been restored for a museum exhibition. The rare surviving fire engine was built at the order of city authorities in the 1670s in a bid to ensure that such a fire would never again engulf the capital. By the time it was acquired by the Museum of London in 1928, only the giant water barrel and part of the metal mechanism of the pump remained. The team was able to restore the fire engine after examining a surviving vintage photograph which shows the engine in the 19th century, when it was still complete with its undercarriage, tow bar and wheels, and the long wooden arms to operate the pump, The Guardian reports. The museum's creator said, The relatively crude pump mechanism was only able to squirt out about six pints of water over a rather short distance, so it would have to be perilously close to the flames to have had any chance of putting them out. The restored fire engine will go on display at the museum's major exhibition on the Great Fire of London of 1666, which opens in July. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets for this year's History Weekend Festivals are currently on sale. The events are taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, including Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver, Simon Sebag Montefiore, and Janina Ramirez. You can find out more details and purchase tickets now at historyweekend.com. Subscribers to BBC History magazine will get discounted tickets for both events. And speaking of the magazine, the July edition is currently on sale. This month is a Somme special that explores this controversial First World War battle from the British and German viewpoints as well as telling the stories of ordinary soldiers who fought there. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on the Anglo-Saxon King Athelstan, the 17th century Monmouth Rebellion, and we reveal the results of our 2016 History Hot 100. You can get hold of our July issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new UK subscribers. You can get your first five issues for just £1 each. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history magazine to find out more details and take advantage of this offer. And you'll need to quote the code HTP205. Each month in the magazine, we include a piece where we visit a place of historical importance accompanied by a historian of the period. For the July issue, we took a trip to Queen Street Mill in Lancashire 
to find out about the role of textiles in the Industrial Revolution. On location there were journalist Nige Tassel and Terry Wyke of Manchester Metropolitan University. Let's hear how they got on. So Terry, what was the state of the cotton industry then before the Industrial Revolution and the, the rise of the factory system? Uh, well, of course, most people rightly associate the cotton industry with the Industrial Revolution being one of the central industries in that in that great transformation. But uh, it's often, in a sense, neglected that the the cotton industry in Lancashire, of course, had a much longer history. And certainly by the 17th century, one sees cotton being imported and being used to make uh, mixed fibre cloths, not uh, all cotton cloths. That's to say uh, cloths that often had a linen uh, and cotton mix. Uh, these were sometimes called fustian cloths. And in this part of the country, but not exclusively in this part of the country, uh, they developed the, the well-known domestic system of production, whereby clothiers, merchants, put out cotton, raw cotton, and, uh, and, uh, and other fibres, uh, and they were worked in the cottages um, by workers who often, in a sense, spent part of their time working on the land uh, and the other part of the time working in the textiles. And, of course, there was that very distinctive sexual division of labour within the industry, if one could call it that at the time. That's to say, with women uh, specialising, concentrating on spinning, whereas it was the men's work was largely connected with the weaving side, working the handloom, working the handlooms. Well, that, that went on during the 17th century and was increasing during the 18th, during the 18th century. Uh, and alongside that, all cotton cloths were being imported. Uh, now, the, the importance of all cotton cloths is that they began to be seen as far superior uh, to the existing cloths. Uh, they had a number of sort of attributes which made them attractive to consumers, to purchasers. Uh, they were comfortable to wear. They were convenient to wash. Um, they were often cheaper than the existing fabrics, woolen, linen fabrics. Um, and they could be more easily printed upon, so they became a sort of a much more attractive cloth. Uh, that had its appeal, uh, not only, but uh, it certainly had its appeal amongst women. Um, and during the 18th century, during the 18th century, at the middle of the 18th century, there was a great sort of pursuit to try and develop technologies that, in a sense, could produce in this country um, all cotton cloths. And there was a series of sort of key technological changes which led eventually in the 1770s and the 1780s to that domestic system of production being challenged. And the, the key individual in that process, and I think one in a sense here can be forgiven for sort of treating history in an heroic way, was, was Richard Arkwright. And it was Arkwright through... Uh, it was Arkwright who, by uh, developing new technologies, uh, both in spinning and in carding, um, 
who moved the industry away from the cottage into purpose-built buildings, i.e. cotton mills, factories. Um, And this is... This, of course, was done famously uh, at Cromford in Derbyshire, which today is a World Heritage Site and is really one of the the key places in the world where in- industrialisation began to occur. Uh, so there was this there was this move away in the early stages of producing cotton. That's to say, at this stage, just simply carding. Uh, that's the cleaning and the straightening of the cotton fibres, and then the um, then the actual spinning of them into yarn, not weaving, but the actual spinning of them into the yarn. That's what Arkwright concentrated upon, and in a sense produced a new production process, which at that time, of course, was driven by water power. Mm. So we're here in the 1770s and the 1780s and the cotton mill, as it were, begins to appear. Other people begin to imitate. Uh, Some, in a sense, pay to use Arkwright's technology because it's patented. Others steal it. And uh, by the 1780s, it's clear that there's a a new, as it were, cloth that is, is, is now becoming available because of this cotton yarn. It is, as I said, you know, a a cloth that has particular attributes, uh, but as more and more of it is being produced in these water-driven cotton mills, it's also becoming cheaper, which, of course, makes it even more attractive. Why is the market? What's the market for it? Now, that's really the first phase of the revolution, but just as that, as it were, is beginning to settle down, the next and perhaps the most iconic phase of the revolution begins, of course, when uh, the production processes in these early cotton mills now, as it were, move from water-driven machinery to steam-driven machinery. And with the development of steam-driven machinery, of course, cotton mills no longer, as it were, had to be anchored uh, near good, reliable sources of water, running water, they could be located elsewhere. And it's with that that one begins to see the development of cotton spinning, particularly in and around Manchester, the towns in and and around Manchester. Uh, And by the late 1790s, one is beginning to see huge, colossal um, spinning mills erected in Manchester. Yeah. Why why did this all happen, as it were, in southeast Lancashire, in the on the borders, the Pennine uh, area running into the West Riding? Well, of course, the simple answer is that it didn't. Uh, that's to say that this revolution that began in cotton spinning, particularly in the water-powered phase, was taking place all over the country. It was, however, with the steam-powered phase that one begins to see a growing concentration of the industry in and around the south, in and around southeast Lancashire. Though there are there are still other areas of the country where cotton spinning, as it were, takes deep roots. Scotland would be an obviously uh, an obvious example. And one of the things we want to put on that list, of course, is New Lanark. 
of places that people ought to go to look at for um, uh, for places to see to understand the cotton industry. Robert Owens, Robert Owens knew Lanark, but by the late eighteenth century, the, the the early nineteenth century, it it was the southeast Lancashire area that as it were, began to become more and more specialised and become associated with this re- with the, with this revolution. And I think the, the reasons, some of the reasons for this, lay of course in this long period of familiarity with the manufacturing uh, and selling of textiles, not just cotton, mixed cloths, but of of all textiles. They had uh, a manufacturing expertise, they had a financial expertise, they had a marketing expertise. So the infrastructure was there already? Yes, and and I think the businessmen were there who were familiar with the industry in a sense could recognise new new opportunities. And they were able to, in a sense, to exploit those very quickly. Uh, And this it were helped to concentrate the industry, particularly in and around Manchester, where Manchester, uh, by the early 19th century, of course, had become a major spinning town, had become a major spinning town, but it was also the major commercial town, as it had been for decades and decades uh, of the industry. Um, so, so Manchester, in a sense, took on a uh, sort of slightly different role to what Dickens later described as these sort of coke towns, <laughs> these the, the, the spinning and weaving towns around Manchester. Um, it, it became, as it were, the marketing, the merchanting centre for the for, for, for the industry. So you have all these mill towns growing up around here. So you have Oldham, Rochdale, and Bolton, and Burnley, where we are today. What would they have been before the factory system? Would they have existed? Were they just little villages? Uh, they, and why, they why did those particular villages? They, they, uh, yes, I mean, they, they, they can be found on the early maps, the, the 18th century county maps. But, I mean, they, they, they were essentially small communities. Well, they didn't lack, as it were, textile experience. They didn't sort of in this, this dual economy whereby you had this domestic system operating. It, 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 was, it was often the case, of course, that Manchester clothiers, Manchester merchants, would be putting out their yarn, say, to be woven, uh, from Manchester to Oldham, to villages around Berry, Bolton. So you, you had a, a, a very complex network which again reminds us, and I should have said this would have been the transport section thing, of course, that although we tend to think about the transport revolution in terms of canals and railways, obviously they're the most spectacular eye-catching transformations, of course, there was, there was very important investment occurring in the roads, the development and investment in new turnpike roads, which again all facilitated the movement of goods, all helped, as it were, to push down costs mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you've got that you 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 you, you, you you've got that going on but the, this expansion of the industry in the 19th century it is really astounding uh, because uh, very early on in the 19th century we, we, we recall of course we were at war <laughs> for much of the uh, for 20 or so years 
uh, the 1790s up to 18 up to 1815. Uh, much of this much of this development is going on during that period during that period of uncertainty because such was the pull of the lure of the profits that could be made if you could produce as it were what some people would call this miracle fiber. It was actually there were huge profits to be made. Um, and it was in supplying uh, both the home market and increasingly, of course, the export markets where uh, great fortunes were to be made. So you've got all that, you've got all that going on. And that expansion, of course, takes place not just in Manchester, but it, it, it comes down... Uh, off the Pennines and indeed from other parts of the country and concentrates in the, in the other communities around Manchester. Uh, Stockport, for example, it becomes a very important spinning town. Oldham by the 1820s and 1830s is also sort of beginning its great advance to become Spindleopolis, as it was sometimes called, this great centre of the cotton industry, though, though people in Bolton would have taken offence at that and reminded people just how important cotton spinning was to the Bolton to the Bolton economy. And you see that advance, I mean, it's marked both, you can measure it both in terms of the numbers of people who were working in the cotton industry in these communities, in the number of mill chimneys, simply that you can count, the number of mills that were being built at a, at a at a national level, of course, we measure it in terms of the the exports. At the at the height of, of the cotton industry, what would these places be like? Would they be working through the night? Would it be shifts through the night? What were the working conditions like? Who was working there? Yeah, um, that's a, an interesting bank of questions. <laughs> um, of course, in, in in terms of working conditions, um, I guess the image which dominates the popular idea of the cotton factory. Is, is that of children working. And during the early part of the Industrial Revolution, of course, children were employed uh, in the cotton industry. But over the, over the, if you like, the long 19th century, over the long 19th century, what, 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 what happens is that the government intervenes and legislates and eventually children, uh, young children, as I say, children under the age of nine to begin with, uh, are not allowed to work. Work in the in, in the cotton mills, uh, so that by the time of the First World War, uh, children were still being employed. But interestingly, they, they were being employed on what's called a half-time system. Uh, do you know if you, you, no. you know, the half-time system? Well, um, yeah, in a place like Burnley or Bolton. Uh, children were brought into the mill, were brought into the mill near the age of 11, 12. But they, they continued their schooling. So that's to say they went to school for half a day and then they worked in the mill for half a day. This was hence the, hence the half-timer. Um, they, they, why did they do this? Uh, well, they did this, actually, because they were such an important part of the family economy. Uh, we sometimes can run away with the idea that factory workers were highly paid, and certainly some of them were relative to other occupations. Um, but there were elite occupations within a spinning mill. 
within a weaving shed, within the weaving shed, leaving aside the gender differences, the differences in pay between, between men and women. But the family income was, was often all important. That's to say, uh, the working class families in, in town like Burnley uh, were able, in a sense, to have a higher standard of living because they had a child or a number of children who were working from a relatively early age in the mill and continued to do so right until after the First World War when legislation brought in and stopped it so that children had to go to school full-time in the Lancashire Cotton Towers. That wasn't, that, that, that wasn't the case before then. Um, so it's, kind of, it's, it's a contrast in the, in the, if you like, and a reminder, of course, that um, the pressures, as it were, upon child employment didn't necessarily always come, as you like, from unscrupulous employers who were looking all the time to drive down their labour costs and to organise uh, their labour in a way that they could employ children for almost nothing. Uh, that wasn't the case. That wasn't. Uh, that might have been the case among some employees in the early part of the nineteenth century. It certainly wasn't as the industry as the industry developed. It was, it was from the workers, the, the employee, the employees. It was from the spinners and the weavers working in the mills. They wanted, as it were, to continue a system whereby they could at least have some children, not young children, but uh, ch- children who would at school, but only at school were part of the time. So that was normal in these places. Right. So, uh, But when the dinner time bell rang in a school, in one of the new elementary schools that had been set up, of course, as you, you know, after the, after the 1870 Education Act, uh, you find troops of children coming out of the mill, out of the school, or it worked both ways. Some went into the mill in the morning and worked and then went to school in the afternoon and... And would the mill be going through the night? How, what, what no, it, 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 uh, the, the hours of working, uh, again, these became um, much more formalised and regulated uh, by various pieces of, pieces of legislation. Um, and, and over the sort of the long 19th century, the, the working week in the cotton industry declined. What we need to be careful of is that at the beginning of that period, starting in the 1780s, 1790s, is running away with the idea that uh, the cotton, the workers in the cotton mills were working extraordinary long hours. Um, I think one should remember, of course, that outside of the cotton industry, people often worked what today might be considered to be extraordinary long hours. The problem with the cotton industry is, of course, is that the, the, the regime was completely different from working outside. You had to be there at a certain time and you had to clock on and you had to, you, 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 you had to clock off. But oh, that's, that's a new concept. You know, well, of course, that, that, that is the whole... When we talk about the factory system, when we talk about the factory system, uh, we're not just simply talking about uh, a number of machines linked together that at the end of the, at the, end of the production process spills out yarn or spills out cotton cloth. You're talking about a, a, a key revolution uh, in the way in which work is all the, the way in which work is organised. But um, whilst I have great sympathy 
In fact, I think there's a great deal of truth sort of in the arguments she usually associated with Marxist historians, E.P. Thompson and others, that uh, the the cotton mill brought in a new form of work, work discipline. Uh, there was also had to be an enormous self-imposed discipline of those people who were working outside, still in, say, in the domestic system. Uh, it, presumably on a nice day, you might knock off early and go... We say for a, for a walk or go down the pub for a couple of hours, but those those hours had to be made up at another point of the working week. So you know you you, you had to work those hours. And I, th I think one of the things that is forgotten is that in the industry under the domestic system and indeed under the early under the early factory system is that workers were often looking to work more hours. Work was paid by the piece by the amount of work that you had and often there was a shortage of work even in the best mills uh, holidays for example were not paid for so it was commonplace of course to work extra hours in the weeks indeed months coming up to a holiday in order of course that you would have some money to tide you through the holiday yeah yeah so that was so, that was okay. so uh, it, 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 it's easy i think to Take the evidence from uh, those extremely well-intentioned reformers who were trying, as it were, to reduce the hours of work, whether that was for children, whether that was for women, or whether that was for adult males. One can see, but of course, inevitably, in, in, in such arguments, they tended, of course, to pick the worst examples. They tended to pick those the, those mills where one could find these very excessive hours. One has to be careful, I think, then about generalising from that data and saying, well, that was the case, perhaps certainly in every mill, or what was the average number of hours work worked in a mill. So one has to be, I think, wary wary of that. But over the whole uh, over the whole of the nineteenth century, it's quite clear that the number of hours were coming down. The number of hours were coming down. Indeed, sometimes resisted by the workers themselves because they were on peace rates. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if someone said, okay, then we, we, we've got a piece of legislation we're trying to push through and it's going to reduce the working week by two hours, well, you either have to <laughs> you have to ask yourself, well, what was I going to produce in those two hours? So it took both employers and and employees some time, as it were, to sort of negotiate their way through that. In all of this, I think I think one ought to also say, of course, that it, it, under the factory system, of course, one also gets the emergence in the cotton industry, of course, of important trade unions. There's no general trade, overarching trade union for the cotton industry, but the, there are separate ones for the carding room, for the for the spinning shed, and for the for, for the weavers. Um, and they become, uh, by the end of the 19th century, extremely powerful players in the, the industry. The, spin, the spinners, in particular, uh, were a very exclusive group. Um, they, they ran a union, they had very high contribution rates, uh, they s saved their funds, and in a sense they... They, they amassed a bank balance which the employers knew about. And if you ever, if you wanted to stop a mill, there were a number of sort of key parts of the process. And of course, the spinners were part, yeah. one of the key parts of the process. So if the spinners came out, of course, if the spinners came out, there was no yarn to come to the Burnley sheds here to weave. Yeah. 
yeah? And so they, uh, they became very, very powerful. That was Terry Wyke and Nigel Tassel. You can read more from them in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned earlier, is on sale now. Now, just before we go, I'd like to give a little mention to our friends at Olive magazine, which is published by the same company as BBC History magazine. They've recently launched their own podcast, and it's packed with fascinating discussions about cooking, eating out and travel. You can find out about the latest food trends, the best new cookbooks and plenty more. The Olive Magazine podcast is free to download and can be found on iTunes and other podcast providers. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Battle of the Somme as we approach its centenary. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>